to the Top Order podcast. Tonight, we're joined by a man with over 100 caps for Australia who scored over 14,000 first-class runs at an average of a tick over 52 and was one of the best in the business on the T20 circuit all around the world. Is the current coach of the Melbourne Stars. We've actually just got off the phone with Shane Bond, who you play in the first game of the tournament for the Thunder. And he says he wants a steak dinner on that first game, but... Um, we'll get into that a little bit later in the podcast. So, David Hussey, thanks for joining us. Thank you very much for having me. So, look, we're keen to talk to you about a wide range of things, but let's start topically with the IPL. So, your official title with the KKR is, is Chief Mentor. What, what is that and, and how did all that come about? Uh, how, how it came about is um, Brendan McCullum, who I've played a lot of cricket with and against, um, he, he called me up in the winter time and asked whether I was willing to uh, jump on his coaching staff and I was sort of a bit reluctant at the time because I've got a young family um, I was coaching the Melbourne Stars and I thought I had too much on my plate but uh, knowing Brendan um, he's very persistent and doesn't really take no for an answer but uh, it was something sort of I know, towards um, going back to Kolkata and uh, helping them out and hopefully achieving their dreams and the role of chief mentor, I didn't really understand what that, that actually meant, but it was pretty much more of a batting focus and uh, being the ministry uh, or the minister for morale, so keeping the boys up and about when uh, they're playing poorly or, or the results haven't gone our way, and but also not getting too too far ahead of ourselves when, when results go our, go our way. So it was really enjoyable, um, uh, about uh, three months worth effectively, but yeah, I really enjoyed my time. Uh, got a really good a bunch of coaches and uh, a great squad to support as well. Did that role take on special significance seeing as you were playing in a biosecure environment in the UAE? Did you feel like there was a, a like a special importance to your role in the team to keep to keep spirits up over such a long tournament? Yeah, absolutely. Um, especially it was really strict by a couple Kolkata Knight Riders were both based in Abu Dhabi and our um, free time, I guess you could say, we, we had a lot of it, lots of downtime. We only really could go downstairs to a restaurant that uh, was just um, specific for us. Uh, there was a gym that we could attend, but there was no really out, outdoor comforts uh, away from it, uh, basically ourselves. So there were a few sort of down days, where, especially when you're not playing as well as you, you wanted to, or you're not throwing the runs or taking the wickets that you wanted to. So um, yeah, it was very important for me to get around to each individual player and uh, keep them up and about and uh, make sure they're fully focused on, on the job at hand and, and hopefully uh, yeah, keep, keep their spirits up and about as well. And, and what was, I mean, it's been obviously such a weird year and, and even getting over there was so weird. What was day one like for you? Because, I mean, I guess you weren't in the camp last year. Did we guys, like, introducing each other in a circle? Like, how did that all work? Well, we all sort of arrived in uh, drips and drabs, really. Uh, I turned up uh, late August, and when you arrive, you get ushered into your room and not allowed to, to um, sort of socialise with anybody um, face-to-face or, or close or close by with anybody um, for the six or seven days. Uh, that was your quarantine period, and that was the law of the Abu Dhabi government. So we, we followed those laws, and then once you're out, you, you sort of get invited down to practice, and you go around and meet people. Uh, player individually and and sort of get to know them quietly and um, it's probably the best way to, to, to do your job or, or 
can really operate your job is by uh, spending a lot of one-on-one time with each individual player and, and find out all um, all about them and what makes them tick, their motivations and what they want to get out for the year and most importantly, how do they play their best cricket. And if you can find out that information early on, uh, it goes a long way to build that trust and uh, and also formulate plans in, in order for everybody to play their best cricket and uh, play harmoniously and, and get some good results for Kolkata. And had you done a lot of video work? Had you looked at lots of the guys on tape, or I guess not on tape anymore, but on the, on the iPad whilst you're in your, your quarantine? Yeah, I did. Um, I think the our analyst, uh, Shrikant, I think he hated me by the end. <laughs> I think he saw my, my name come up on his phone day in, day out, asking for little bits of information or little uh, snippets of uh, video of certain players amongst our group. And I think he got really frustrated with me by the end of the, the seven days quarantine, especially he was because he was in the uh, the Caribbean at the time with the CPL. Um, so, yeah, we're all in different parts of the globe at that stage. But um, fortunately, he's a, one of the best analysts in the world and uh, provided a lot of um, lot of information, a lot of videos, and, uh, yeah, a lot of homework, uh, which was required to get the best out of um, the, the players that we had. But also, I needed the, the background information to, to do my job to, to the fullest of its ability. And you talked a little bit about the, the hotel there. What was your setup? We just spoke with uh, Shane Bond, as we said. It sounded like my honeymoon, the, the sort of uh, the Mumbai Indians <laughs> camp. It, they'd got you know, 17 restaurants, candlelit dinners, table tennis, horseback riding. What, what was it like <laughs> What was it like for you guys? Well, not as luxurious as that, put it that way. Um, <laughs> we had a gym. We had a, a one restaurant downstairs, uh, but we had access to other restaurants throughout the hotel, um, but we just weren't allowed to attend physically in, in those restaurants. So we could order in from those their menus and they'd bring the uh, your meals to you in your own uh, restaurant, which was pretty much uh, uh, exclusive to the Kolkata Night Rider people, which was nice. Um, uh, we had, Yeah, like I said, we had a gym, a nice team room, which had ping pong and uh, pool uh, set up and just a nice uh, casual area where people went to socialise and watch videos and... Yeah, it was a it was pretty good, pretty good setup, if I must admit. But um, unfortunately, the pool was uh, off limits. Uh, we had our own little adult pool from nine a.m. to twelve uh, p.m. every day, but none of the boys really woke up until about one o'clock in the afternoon, so that wasn't really used. Um, other than that, I, I pretty much used all my time having cups of coffee with with uh, four or five people a day, and and getting out and about doing training and uh, going to the gym. So. I had a very, very um, prolific winter back in Melbourne, so I needed to lose a few kilos, so I went to the gym pretty much every day. <laughs> and how much of your role was getting guys to like take their mind off the cricket and take their mind off the cricket field? Uh, we, we listened to a couple of interviews with guys who experienced that bubble in England, and they talked about just how all-pervasive that biosecure environment was. They had a view of the ground. They felt like they could never really escape cricket. How much of your role was getting guys to switch off and relax over, over that period of time? Yeah, it's depending if they were local boys, local Indian players, or whether they were um, Westerners or international players. Like the West Indian boys, Dre and Andre Russell and Son on the Rhine, they just loved talking cricket at all times. So they were almost cricket tragics, which is well, which was fantastic and easy for me. And just learning new strategies and, and implementations of plans and plays uh, and, and different styles of T20 cricket, which was uh, yeah, really educational for me. But uh, they were just too easy boys to talk to, whereas the local Indian players, um, you don't realise how much pressure and stress they're under. They're talking to their family and friends back home, and obviously they're talking about cricket, and they want to talk to you about cricket. 
Um, and, yeah, they don't really get away from cricket too much unless you're in the gym. Um, fortunately, we had a really good S&C. Um, he's, he's a Kiwi boy, actually. He's um, with the, the Black Caps at the minute. Um, he, he was brilliant, and he managed to take their minds off the cricket to a certain extent and really focused on their recovery and getting stronger throughout the tournament. But every case was individual. Um, some people liked talking cricket, other people didn't, um, but more so the... The overseas players generally stayed away from the cricket, and my job was to, to talk to them about anything but cricket, which was uh, quite a lot lightning as well. On to the actual cricket. It felt like watching that tournament that every side had a run where they'd have two or three games where they built a lot of momentum, and, and then they would have a bit of a run where they, they just couldn't find that, that, um, that form, that kind of zone. Was it difficult to build momentum in that, in that IPL tournament where you kind of you never played at home, there were no crowds, so many foreign things going on? Yeah, it was a bit of an unknown, actually. You know, it seemed like every team could beat anybody on their day, with the exception of Mumbai Indians, who were completely the standout for the competition. But uh, you go to the ground with all your plans in place, and you just didn't know what was going to transpire throughout the, the fixture. Like, you, you had all your strategies, and then all of a sudden, somebody would come off and play the innings of their life, or have the, the spell of bowling of their life, and win their their, their team, their game. So it was just, it was unpredictable, fantastic tournaments. And like you said, momentum and confidence uh, go, goes a long way amongst the group. Uh, I think we lost three in a row at one stage, and I kept thinking, oh, we're not going to win another game for the tournament. Then all of a sudden, someone on the Ryan comes out and hits uh, 70 or 80 off about 30 balls, and or Lockie Ferguson comes out who hadn't played a game for the whole tournament and gets uh, four wickets for about 10 runs and wins the, the game. and it's just uh, an amazing tournament to be a part of, and uh, momentum is a very dangerous word, but confidence is even uh, uh, it's probably the paramount word that you need to, uh, to take into every, every game you play. And can you quantify, I guess, that home advantage piece in cricket? If you look at Premier League football now, the home winning percentage has come down significantly with no crowds. What, you, cricket's obviously different because there's the pitch conditions as well, which change so often from ground to ground. What did that feel like for you in the IPL? Uh, it was playing in Abu Dhabi, which was 20 minutes down the road, and where we've been, we practiced on the outside grounds and, and the nets. Uh, if we had a, um, uh, yeah, we we played it uh, in Abu Dhabi. It was uh, probably more um, probably realistic, and uh, we could actually sort of visualise how the game was going to go. And we had a really good record at Abu Dhabi. Whereas when you travel to Dubai or Sharjah, which is two and a half hour bus trip um, to and from, or three hour bus trip to Sharjah, we probably didn't quite get the recipe uh, quite right. Um, we, we won a couple of games in Dubai, which we played quite well in, but we also lost a couple because of due and, and other reasons. For Sharjah, we, we lost, I think, three, three, maybe four games there. So yeah, it was um, it was quite probably quite didn't quite get the recipe quite right for those away trips. But in saying that, when you, you're playing at home and the training facility is just just around the corner, it's uh, it definitely definitely helps you just sort of calm all the boys down. And uh, that home ground advantage, like you said, it's it's not not huge, but it does uh, you take into consideration with confidence for all the players. That travel aspect wasn't one of the things we that I, I read anything about travel in terms of all of the preparation for the tournament, all of the previews. No one talked about travel as being influential. Was that something that some of the teams perhaps underestimated, the impact of that travel between the cities in, in terms of the tournament? Uh, I think so, yeah. Um, well, we definitely did for the Sharjah because we lost every game we played there. 
whether that was the, the travel time, whether it was a small ground, whether it was we didn't get used to the, the pitch, uh, it was all encompassing and we didn't quite get the recipe right. So but the two-hour bus trip or two-and-a-half-hour bus trip um, from Abu Dhabi to Dubai or three hours to, to Sharjah definitely took a lot out of the players. Um, yeah, we played some good cricket in Dubai, but probably not our best cricket. But um, in, in saying that, it was probably the, the necessary evil and probably wasn't as bad as what I'm making out. But, um, yeah, probably have to do a bit better next year if, if the tournament is held in uh, the UAE next year. You talked just before about, um, I guess, kind of the different uh, mindsets, I suppose, of the Indian and, and the overseas players. And Brendan McCullen's sort of really well-renowned for his like aggressive approach, encouraging freedom and things. Owen Morgan sort of talked about in the lead-up to the lead up to that World Cup that he kind of borrowed from that and is trying to instill it in the English dressing room. How does that go down with the maybe the young Indian guys? Yeah, so... I learned so much of Brendan and Owen, for that matter, throughout the tournament. Uh, Brendan's belief that he had in all the players was was pivotal for our for our team. And just the amount of confidence that he gave all the players to see the ball and run towards the the danger or run towards the pressure and embrace it and uh, always back your your own skills, whether it's with the bat in the field or, or with the ball. Um, yeah, it was just fantastic to see and really um, invigorated the group and invigorated myself with belief of certain players, you know, and oh, I really learned a lot of Brendan and just how calm he is throughout um, every game, every training session and little things that didn't bother him, which probably would have bothered me in, in internally, but hopefully externally it doesn't really show too much. But him and uh, Owen, uh, Brendan and Owen were just a perfect uh, combination for each other and they gave each other and the rest of the group so much confidence to take the game on, play with as much freedom as possible and, and just have confidence in each other that we are going to get the best results for our team. And it felt like that um, confidence and that playing without fear rubbed off on a lot of your young players. I mean, one of the finds for the tournament for us was Varun Chakravarthy. I mean, not many people would have known his story before the, the tournament started and we were lucky to watch the YouTube clip about him and it's really inspirational. But he had an outstanding tournament, 17 wickets at 20. I mean, were you aware of him beforehand? He's, he's quite a, an, an inspirational character. Yeah, he's an inspirational character and a very clever character too. Off, off the field, he's a, he's an architect um, and, yeah, very smart player, um, smart person, sorry, off the field. But I didn't know too much about him until I arrived. And just he's very well-spoken, very humble. Uh, he's from Tamil Nadu. Um, yeah, very smart kid. But also this inner drive amongst him that, that he doesn't want to uh, lose to anyone. He generally bowled... Uh, tough overs in the power play or tough overs at the end of the innings and, and generally came out on top. So, um, yeah, fantastic person. And, uh, yeah, just wrapped to see him uh, succeed because you always want good things to happen to good people and, and Baron is uh, no different to that. And, look, uh, one thing we kind of talked about uh, during a lot during the tournament and in, in just talking amongst ourselves, we talked about kind of tactics and specifically kind of how people use the batting order in a T20. I mean, we, you know, you look at guys like... Uh, you know, Josh Butler, Glenn Maxwell, Stoyanis, Andre Russell, there must be a really tough balance between kind of getting them in early and giving them enough time to, you know, make that impact on the game or actually, you know, saving them for those final crucial finisher overs. How do you, how do you kind of manage that balance? Yeah, the way we used it, um, and it's probably not speaking out of school too much, but uh, it, it's almost like you're trying to send in your, your pinch hitter in so 
it forces the opposition to bowl their best bowlers, leaving them a little bit uh, short at the back end of the inning, so you can really maximise the death overs. And then it's up to our batsmen who have been um, implemented earlier to play some smart cricket and really target their bowler, which suits their matchup. For example, Sunil Narayan goes out to bat when there's a left arm off spinner goes on and he's got a free reign to smack him out of the stadium sort of thing. And if a quick comes back on, um, it's forcing the opposition to bowl one of their best bowlers. So maybe you could take his medicine and just hit up the pitch for a little bit and, and survive that over, hoping that they bowl another spinner at the other end and Sunil Narayan can uh, pretty much uh, take maximum damage off that over. So uh, it's really a cat and mouse game, which something which I, I did think of at the time, but um, you know, I didn't really believe how much uh, of an effect it actually had until Brendan sort of explained it to you, uh, game two or game three, and it's something I believe in now. It's going to be the future of T20 cricket. It's uh, yeah, fantastic to watch in action, especially when it works. How different was that experience to the experience you had as a player in your first season of the IPL? I mean, a lot of people we talk to describe it as being overwhelming, intense, the love of cricket in India as being kind of all-encompassing. What was your experience like as a player in the IPL? Um, I loved it. Uh, going to the IPL in 2008 was the first year. Um, I was a bit overwhelmed at the start. The, the team that I was in was Kolkata Knight Riders, and we had McCullum, Ganguly, uh, Ricky Ponting, Ishan Sharma, Akash Chopra. We had all these uh, very good players playing for us. And you know, sitting in a dressing room, it was sort of like... Uh, um, trying to get as much information out as possible from a Surab Ganguly or a Ricky Ponting or a Brendan McCullum on how they play the game or how they view the game should be played. And it was sort of a festival of knowledge which you had to sort of buy into in order to improve your game, which I love. And then we also had these young kids coming through who were going to be the next superstars of Indian cricket, which... Um, I don't know, back in those days, it was sort of Australia were the kings of the world and then there was um, India, which fast becoming or snapping at our heels. And I don't think the relationship was that strong between Australia and India. But then once you actually sit in a dressing room with uh, Indian players and get to know each other, all of a sudden you're teammates and you get on famously and you got friends for life. So uh, I reckon it broke down a few barriers too. And yeah, I still believe that the IPL has been the best thing for, to happen in world cricket for, for, for many a year. Yeah, I was just going to ask that. Was there any hesitancy going into that first IPL tournament about sharing experiences, tactics, how you approach the game for fear of how it might affect your own national side? Yeah, initially, um, I think I was a little bit apprehensive about giving a, a few secrets away, probably more towards uh, my, my good friends. But then at the end of the day, um, like we're Australian and um, you, you just want to win. So uh, I remember playing against Cam White. He was playing for the Royal Challengers Bangalore the first year and they were pretty much in the team meeting. How do we get Cam White out? And I remember thinking there was, so there was a good me on one shoulder and a bad me on the other shoulder. And I was like, do I tell him all his secrets or not? And in the end, you yeah, just have to. you got to say, right, this is what we're going to do. This is a plan. This is what he doesn't like. These are his strengths. These are his weaknesses. Because at the end of the day, you want to win the game for your team and you want to um, qualify for the finals and you want to win the whole IPL. And at the end of the day, if you're getting giving good secrets out about your, your good friends and your good teammates, it's um, probably forcing that player to get better and better and, and work on their weaknesses as well. So it's a win-win situation, uh, the longevity of the game. And when you played, you sort of uh, you had a big price tag on, on your back there. 
how, how is that something you thought about and and you know is there an extra level of expectation and and I guess how is that different in terms of playing for a franchise where you've got an owner essentially instead of you know playing for your country or your state which you know I mean I, mean, I guess you still have a boss there but it's not doesn't quite feel like the same from the outside yeah, it's an excellent point, excellent question. Um, when you're playing, you got so many people saying you, you're earning this much money and you go out to bat and you, you've gone out to bat and there's, this is the fourth over and you, your team's two for 20. Um, ideally, that's the best position to be in, um, as, as harsh as that sounds, as a number four or five batsman. So, because you've got more time to play, you can get yourself in, get a feel of the pitch um, and, and really sort of target which bowlers you want to play. Whereas at other times, if you're going into the 19th over and you get three balls to hit, you get bowled out for one off three balls and the owners are saying, hang on, what's going on? We've paid X amount of dollars for you and you're not throwing the run. So there's always pressure involved there. When you're playing for your, your state or your country or, or your county you're playing in, um, there's a different type of pressure because you're playing to win that series or that game which in order to win that series, but also you're playing for your spot in the team. So... It's a similar type of pressure, but it's different in the same breath. If, if I can articulate that better, I, I probably can't articulate that better. I apologise. But um, there is a, it's a different type of pressure, but the, it is a pressurised environment, if I can say that. Well, look, that, that's probably a good time to, to step back to your playing days in a bit more detail. And certainly that pressure of the backyard with... Uh, with brother Mike. So we, we've heard a little bit about those those battles from his perspective. He sounds like he was a little bit of a bully and you had to keep locking yourself in the car because he was always trying to get you to come out and bowl at him, presumably. <laughs> is, there, is there a story you've got to write a reply that you want to get your own back on him? No. Oh, um, that was some of the worst days of cricket in my life, actually. So pretty much I was a reluctant backyard cricketer, um, very lazy kid who didn't want to play because Mike was just so much better than me, older, stronger, um, and just a better player. However, there was a window of opportunity when he decided to turn from right-handed to left-handed because of his hero, Alan Border. So I thought, happy birthday. Um, <laughs> I can really dominate him. Uh, unfortunately, it took him about a week to perfect being a left-hander, and my little Melbourne Marshalls or Dennis Lillies probably weren't going to um, really affect him too much. And the only way I'd pretty much play was uh, a promise that I'd bat first and there would be no wicketkeeper because he'd generally get me out and nick me off to the wicketkeeper all the time. So I didn't bat for very long and Mike batted for hours and I generally got bored of bowling to him and uh, generally ended up in fisticuffs and me running around the house and the, the safe haven or the safe house was the uh, the car. And bear in mind, there was no central locking in those days, so I had to get around to all four doors pretty quickly <laughs> in order to save myself from a beating. Uh, all seriousness, though, what what impact do you think that sort of battleground with a with a sporting sibling has on your competitive drive throughout the course of your career? There's obviously some pretty good examples of you know brothers who've been very successful in the international game and not just cricket. Well, it taught, taught me resilience. That's what it did do, um, and taught me that building for long periods of time in in any game of cricket is not not fun for anyone, really. So. Uh, first and foremost, that. But the competitiveness, um, I don't know if that taught, was taught in the backyard or not, or whether it's just uh, hereditary. But um, the, the feeling of not losing to each other, I think that sort of <laughs> um, really carried us over and probably spilled over into fights uh, in the backyard. But we played for hours. Like, this is 
backyard test matches for hours, and like I said, generally I finish second. Um, but these are good fun at the time until they end up in, into into beatings. But did it stand us in good stead for, for later on in life? Um, not initially, but I, I think uh, uh, I, I think it really harnessed our games um, to a certain extent and really really helped us uh, in the, our determination determination to be successful in, in in the chosen sport that we had. But back to cricket. It wasn't really a fun time for me growing up, put it that way. You forged a fantastic first-class career for Victoria, not your native state of WA. Can you talk us through that decision to move from Western Australia to Melbourne to to try and break into first-class cricket? How tough was that for you, um, sort of mentally and emotionally, to have to make that decision? Uh, It was awful. Um, It probably wasn't. It was probably the hardest decision of my life at that stage, but that's just saying, or probably just explaining that I've had the easiest life in the world up until that stage. Like, uh, um, I was at university, living at home, having all my meals um, cooked for me, my washing done, I lived on the beach, uh, I had a pretty cruisy life, and it was either going one way or the other. Uh, I was either going to go into the corporate world uh, being a graduate, or um, did I really want to play first class career for WA? And um, I probably sat down and uh, had a look in the mirror and said, yeah, I think I might, maybe I was a bit jealous of Mike. He was already playing for WA at the time and um, I think I thought maybe I could make it, maybe one or two games as a first-class player for WA and so I really put two good years in uh, pre-season-wise, harness the skills and, um, yeah, really um, made the decision really to, to um, sort of jump into that uh, into that first class arena but unfortunately I, I didn't get selected and um, I, I got a call from a, a premier club in Victoria asking me whether I was willing to, to move over to Melbourne and try my luck and at that stage I probably didn't believe I was good enough to play first class cricket I just thought it was a, a nice free opportunity to move over to a big city um, use my university degree to, to get into the corporate world and get a, a proper decent job and go down that field and um, just play some club cricket on the weekend, which I really enjoyed. And um, I hated the first year. It was cold. It was wet. Um, I didn't like working. Um, I caught the train, didn't have a car. It was, uh, yeah, probably some of the, the darker times. But in, in hindsight, it was probably the best thing for me. It, it made me grow up. I had to clean, had to cook. Um, yeah, it made me grow up in, into uh, maybe from a boy to a, to a man pretty quickly and uh, made me organised, I guess, and uh, made me really sort of, Valued the, the fact that I actually wanted to play first-class cricket, and unfortunately, it wasn't for WA, and uh, turned out to be one of the best decisions I had, and ended up playing uh, about ten or eleven years for Victoria, which I, I cherished. I, I loved every minute of it. Yeah, you certainly made a fantastic career playing for for the Bush Rangers in Victoria. How did how quickly, or did the Wacker ever contact you and, and try and get you back? And did, were you ever tempted to move back to Western Australia, or had you just fallen in love with Victoria at that point? Uh, no, the Wacker was never in contact, and it's probably a good thing too because I'd made the move. I was pretty much settled in, in Victoria at the time, um, and I, I wouldn't have said I fell in love with Victoria at, this, at the time. I was always like, uh, yep, yeah, this is a, a stop stopgap filler because I, deep down I probably didn't believe I was good enough to, to be a 10-year player of, of first-class cricket um, in, in Australia, so... I was just one of those fortunate ones that uh, went out and played happy-go-lucky style of cricket, um, had a nice backward defence, um, which sort of stand you in good stead in first-class cricket. But 
seats down, the belief probably wasn't quite there to uh, make a, a, a success of uh, first-class cricket. But in saying that, I was very, very lucky. I had a couple of good people around me, and, and Greg Shepherd and, and my father as well. He was basically telling me, you're never coming home. So there probably wasn't an opportunity to come home as well. So I, I was very lucky in that aspect that I had a coach and, and a father telling me what to do. You're speaking uh, very humbly about your your own career, but obviously then uh, went over overseas, played for for Knotts. We read a I read a great uh, story about an introductory function you went to, uh, at where the, the coach <laughs> didn't even really know who you were. Is that is that legit? Yep, it's legit. Yeah. Um, so so basically, how it came about me playing for Knotts, I played about a dozen first class games for Victoria and. Um, Notts wanted a big name player, which was Steve War at the time. And Steve War asked for an exorbitant amount of money to play for the whole year, and Notts just couldn't afford it. So they said, "What about um, you, you share it with uh, Steve? And have you got anybody else in mind?" And Steve, I must have made runs against New South Wales that year for some reason. And fortunately, Steve War put my name up in lights, and so I got contacted by the coach and of Nottinghamshire, and he said, "Would you be willing to come over?" and I just thought it was a great opportunity to get out of uh, pre-season in Melbourne and the cold and wet winter months of Melbourne is dire. So why not play some county cricket in England and yeah, have a good time and, and drink some beer and score some runs and, and yeah, have, have some fun really. So I arrived, I think it was the 1st of April, funnily enough, and it was freezing cold. Drove up the motorway to Nottingham and um, yeah, had a shower. Went down to the uh, the season launch the function and Sir Richard Hadley was the guest speaker and um, I was all pretty keen to listen to how he spoke because he's revered in, in Nottinghamshire. He's one of the all-time greats, um, along with Garfield Sobers, uh, as the best two overseas players ever to grace Brent Bridge. And the coach gets up and uh, bear in mind, I'm sitting on the table with uh, some members and some sponsors and you, you go around when you meet them and you introduce yourself and they don't know who you are either. So it's uh, really quite embarrassing. And then you get the head coach goes up and uh, he asked me to stand up and uh, wave and, and stand up and he said, uh, well, he's played a dozen first-class games for Victoria. I have never seen him play. Uh, I don't really know who he is, so uh, I wish him all the best. And it was, I must admit, I went bright red, uh, had a bit of a lump in my throat and started thinking to myself, what the hell am I doing here? Like, this is just out of my comfort zone. But deep down, when I got home that night, I was like, right. I'm going to show these blokes that I can actually play this game. And, uh, yeah, fortunately, um, I fell on my feet there. It's probably one of the best um, counties ever to be um, be associated with. And I love my time uh, at Trent Bridge. It's, uh, yeah, a home away from home. And how much of a pest is Graham Swan? <laughs> Graham Swan. Uh, he, oh, wow, what a bloke. Um, <laughs> we lived about two, two or three doors down from each other. And let's just say he's a... One of the best people to have in a dressing room going around. Um, one of the worst roommates you can have because he's non-stop at your door when you just want to get away from your teammates. And he's effectively you spend six days in a row, uh, non-stop, twenty-four hours a day with you with the with your teammates. And um, yeah, Graham's one lived two doors down, regularly knocking on my door, mate, just inviting himself in, or can we go out for dinner, or can we go to a pub, blah blah. So. Let's just say my skin folds went up a, a lot, uh, spending um, yeah, a lot of time with Graham Swan. But wonderful company, wonderful human being, uh, and geez, he's one hell of a cricketer. Can bat, can bowl, can catch. He's uh, yeah, he's excellent, excellent player. Can't can't dance though. If you've seen him on that show, 
uh, Graham will say he can dance. That, that's Graham. He's 100% confident in his own ability at everything. So, excellent person. And by this time, you were piling on the runs sort of home and abroad in Australia and, and in England. At what point did you feel like you really belonged as a first-class cricketer? You've been really humble uh, talking about your career up to this point, but at what point did you feel like you belonged as a first-class cricketer and how close did you feel like you were to cracking that Aussie side when you were in your 20s? Um, I probably didn't really feel that confident until about maybe 2010, 2011, really. Um, it, it's probably when you learn about your game the most is when you, you're struggling the best. Um, probably a couple of down years in 06, 07 in Victoria. I was in and out of the team a bit. I wasn't scoring the runs. I was mentally tired. I didn't really know much about my game. Um, I was still learning about it. And then uh, I remember speaking to a couple of the uh, senior pros in England, Stephen Fleming as well, and, and Greg Shippard, sitting down with them and probably having some really hard conversations about what they saw in me in order to make, or what they saw in me and what improvements I needed to make in order to be a... Uh, a standout first-class player and, in, in the end, play international cricket for Australia. And um, some of those conversations were harsh, but they're probably fair. And I guess I'm one of those people that prefer hearing it uh, face-to-face than uh, reading about it in the papers um, from, from people I don't really respect or, or, or don't really trust, I guess. But um, 2010, 2011, I reckon, that's probably when I started believing in, in my own game and um, probably when I was at most settled and most comfortable uh, that I could be a success in, in the first-class game. You made your T20 debut for Australia at, at 30 and an ODI debut later that year in 2008, just a few days shy of your 31st birthday. That must have been a very special time for you, not only to play for Australia, but to, to, take, the, to take the ground with your brother as well. Yeah, it was a special time. Firstly, that 2008 T20 debut, um, I was actually just started seeing my girlfriend, my now wife, and she thought I was just a dud first-class cricketer. So um, when I got the call to say I'm playing for Australia at the MCG in front of 80-odd thousand people, I pretty much went from a 4 out of 10 looks-wise to about a 6 out of 10. So <laughs> I was pretty happy about that. So, um, But uh, if I'm serious for a moment, um, that was probably a dream come true. And more, more so the catalyst about walking into that dressing room where um, you had Ponting, Clark, Andrew Simons, my brother, uh, Brad Hodge. Um, there was just so many excellent players around the league. And when you walk into that dressing room, you're sort of on eggshells a little bit. Um, do you really belong? There's all these insecurities that sort of kick in. And then when you meet, like, Ricky Ponting comes up and, and basically explains that you deserve your spot in the team and go out there, and he made you feel that you, you were the number one player in that team and you can go out there and just do anything and, and just have some fun. And it's sort of a sense of calmness comes over you. And I, I think that was almost a catalyst where, hang on, I can actually, I, I do believe that I do belong in this dressing room. And, uh, yeah, it was a, a really nice moment to, to have. I really enjoyed it. How much do you remember of your of your debut games? Did it all go by in a blur, or, or you, are you able to remember some fond memories of, of those debut games on the field? I remember it all. Um, I'm probably yeah, a bit like Mike Ross out of suits when it comes to cricket, uh, sort of a bit of a photographic memory um, when it comes to cricket, sort of know each, each innings or where I played or did, did I bat well, did I bat poorly, um, did I bowl or bowl, other chunks which I normally do. But that debut game in 2008 uh, at the MCG, there was a lot of people there, took a catch early. Um, the, the pitch was really used and ended up getting MS Sony out, which I wasn't actually planned to bowl. My, my um, 
in, in the team meeting before, the, the day before or the, the night before, I wasn't actually bowling, so I was pretty relaxed and had a decent night's sleep, and we won the game easily. And all I remember about, the, the, probably the last uh, memory of that game was sitting down next to Brad Hodge, who's a teammate of mine from Victoria for, for many a year, and we were really close friends. Um, we needed about 20 to win, and sort of said, oh, mate, my debut game, um, selfishly, would you mind if I put the pads on and go out ahead of you? And, and he sort of shook his head and just with a big smile, sorry, mate, <laughs> yeah, can't do it. So, um, But, yeah, it was a very enjoyable game. But that night, didn't even get a chance to go out and celebrate because I was on the 7 o'clock flight to Perth the next day to play in a one-day game, must-win one-day game for Victoria against Western Australia. So no rest, but, uh, yeah, something I'd never change because I really enjoyed playing cricket at that, at that time. And I mean, often we, you know, we'll do a, a bit of a look through and, and kind of pick out our own highlights from people's, you know, international careers and things. But does something stand out above the rest for you? Um, in, in any game of cricket, um, sure, yeah. a highlight, a whole for international cricket. Um, I played in the World Cup 2011, which was a highlight. I, I really enjoyed that time. Um, made me realise how much I valued playing for Australia at the time. Um, yeah, it's probably one of the dumbest things I ever did, actually, that trip, that 2011 World Cup, which um, uh, it still frustrates me, yet I'm sort of proud at the same time. Um, Doug Bollinger went home injured, and we all sort of sat around, and we needed to replace some player, and my brother did his hamstring um, about probably six weeks before the World Cup uh, happened to go, but he wasn't quite right to make the team. So the um, the selectors didn't pick him in the finals for the 14 or 15. And when Doug Bollinger went home injured during the World Cup, and I was texting Mike a lot, Mike was saying, nah, I'm ready to go, get me in there. Full well knowing, if I ha- happened to present Mike um, to the group to say, yeah, we should pick him, because he was one of the best white ball players in the world at that stage and, and forever, uh, one of the best white ball players in the world. Do I, you know, the good David, bad David thing on my shoulders, do I for the betterment of the team, do I say him full well knowing he's probably going to take my position in the team? So I mentioned Mike's name, and yep, sure enough, they uh, they sort of ran with that, and Mike came over, and sure enough, yeah, Mike took my position in the team, but it was still the right call, and uh, unfortunately, we got knocked out in the quarters, but uh, yeah, it was, it was definitely the right call, because Mike was an unbelievable white ball player for Australia. So not a like-for-like like swap, that left, left arm seamer for a top-order batter? <laughs> well, our team was flying at that stage, so I don't think we needed any much uh, any depth in the in the in the fast bowling department. But uh, Mike's underrated with his uh, little medium paces. He probably could have done a job with a new ball and, and a better head of hair as well. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Do you have any special memories of batting Mike with Mike in Australia? I mean, I found a scorecard in '09 against New Zealand where you both made seventy odd. Do you have any special memories that stand out for you? Uh, yeah, that game um, was we were behind in the series. Uh, walked out to bat. I, was, I think I was about to get dropped. I reckon because I wasn't playing that well. And um, yeah, I was never really determined about doing well. There was bushfires going on in Victoria at the time. We had friends and family sort of not really knowing if their they were going their houses and, and land and, and property were going to survive or not. They were sort of living out of tents and caravans, and there was just lots of external stuff going on and. Just remember getting to the ground and Adelaide thinking, right, come on, you got to switch on. Whatever happens external, just that's gone. You can pick that up at the end. And I really focused that day and taking guard and just 
sort of almost like batting utopia. I just knew I was going to get some runs. First ball hit the middle of the bat. And, uh, yeah, I remember Mike walking out to bat and he was all nervous. And he's a terrible person to bat with because he's so anxious and so insecure about his game. And, like, the ball doesn't move off the straight, but he would play a miss and say, oh, mate, it's moving everywhere and like, I'm not going to get a run here. And it's like, just shut up, will you? You average 55 at a strike rate of 90. Just calm down. Like, it's just, whereas I'm more just, like, just don't worry about it. Just just kick the ball, watch the ball play on instinct and everything would be fine, you know? Just run hard. Just the mm. typical cliche batting. But that game there was just, it was a nice, nice game to get a few runs together. But the game I probably marvel at the most is, uh, I think it was game two or game three that I ever played with Mike. It was game two, actually, tell a lie. And um, we are playing in St. Kitts in the West Indies. And Mike was already batting and he was about 15 off about 25 balls. And I walk out to bat. And Mike said, right, they're, they're bowling so well here. Fidel Edwards is bowling rocket fast. Um, just be moving. Oh, mate, you probably won't get a run off him. He's too fast. And then Darren Pally's also bowling <laughs> fast at a weight swingers. And, mate, it's impossible out here. It's like, geez, just help me out of here. He was just so insecure and so, um, I don't know, anxious about his own game and own performance that it was just like, mate, you just stay down your end and I'll stay down my end and just don't let any of this negativity get into my head sort of thing. But we managed to get a little bit of a partnership together. And uh, in saying that, I, I probably actually enjoyed batting with him because he just made the game look so easy and uh, took a lot of pressure off you once he was in and, and confident in his own ability. So it was uh, yeah, quite an enjoyable experience. And, uh, and, I mean, we've talked quite a bit about the, the white ball stuff, obviously. But, I mean, you, you've been described as, you know, one of the best batsmen ever for Australia to never wear the baggy green. We, we touched on it before. You finished with an average of 52 in first-class cricket which uh, I think at least was at one point was the highest average for an Australian that had never te- played a test. When you hear things like that, does, I mean, how, how sort of much does it make you proud, which I feel like you obviously should be you had an amazing career, but how much does it kind of hurt that you never had that opportunity? Well, talking about it doesn't help, does it? But, um, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> no, no, that's no, fine. Uh, well, it, it's amazing because, you go through your grades, like you go through your childhood and you want to play first grade cricket for your club team. Then you, you want to play sack 11 cricket and then your next goal is to play first class cricket. Um, but I failed in that goal. I wanted to play first class cricket for WA and, and wasn't good enough. And I ended up leaving to go to Victoria. So my goal in Victoria was to play first grade for, for my club team, Paran, at that time. And then uh, second eleven cricket, which is my goal, then to play first class cricket for Victoria, and then go on to play uh, Aussie A cricket for, for Australia, and then uh, Test match cricket. Unfortunately, I fell short on the uh, the, the last one. Um, but in saying that, I probably didn't deserve to play at the time. There was just too many good players and scoring big runs um, at the same breath. I think there's only one time where maybe I was close where. Um, it was a Nashes series and they were travelling to Perth and I think Shane Watson or Simon Cadditch had an injury. I think it was Simon Cadditch had an injury and they were looking for an opening batsman. I remember sending Mike a text uh, saying, can you go back up to opening the batting and I'll slide into the middle order? <laughs> and he just sent back a, a laughter emoji. Yeah. And I think at that stage, um, I think they picked Steve Smith and um, Phil Hughes and I remember walking off the ground in the game against England, coincidentally, and I saw a few runs and the uh, the team or the squad gets announced up on the big screen at the MCG and I was not out 80-odd, it's not out at tea and walking out. And I remember always take your helmet off at tea time and, and sort of 
um, especially when you score a few runs. And then the team gets announced on the MCG big scoreboard. My, the helmet went back on. There was a few little tears in my eyes thinking, nah, that's it. This is my last chance. I'll probably never get played again. Um, and not taking anything away again from Steve Smith or Phil Hughes because they probably deserved their chance to play. But I thought at that time maybe I'd done a little bit more than uh, Steve Smith or, or Phil Hughes to get that last uh, last two spots in that, that test team. But in hindsight, I, I think the Aussie selectors have made the right decision with uh, with choosing Steve Smith ahead of me. And now you're the coach of the Melbourne Stars, a, a massive franchise in Australian Big Bash cricket. And we talked about the IPL uh, a little earlier in our podcast. Was a transition to, to coaching something that you thought about as you came towards the end of your playing career? Yeah, it was. Um, I'm fascinated with helping people achieve their dreams, really. Uh, um, I loved it when I was, I was just sort of fascinated with the game and, and how different people could sort of uh, understand the game of cricket, really. Um, more so the batting side and the strategy side of the game than the fast bowling. Um, I was probably first one to put the hand up that I know nothing about fast bowling and nor do I really care about fast bowling um, except about hitting the ball into the stands. So, um, But the goal about being becoming a coach was more about uh, helping the, the next generation Victorian players to uh, fulfil their dreams of playing international cricket for Australia. Um, I, I believe there's a massive jump from Premier Cricket in Victoria to Shield Cricket and then a massive jump from Shield Cricket into uh, the international arena. So it was my goal when I was just about to finish playing first-class cricket for Victoria was to sort of short, try to shorten that gap through education and, and um, sort of technique um, in order to make the transition a, a lot smoother and yeah, something I really am passionate about. And, uh, yeah, I want to see four or five Victorian young kids um, playing or batting for the Australian Test team or one-day team uh, in the near future because it's a real big passion of mine. And how does that big bash experience compare to the IPL? How do players rate coming down and playing T20 franchise cricket in Australia over the Christmas period? Well, it's hard, um, especially being a, a Melbourne-based uh, team. Uh, you're generally away for Christmas every year. Um, so my wife's detriment, he doesn't really like me at this time of year. But um, uh, <clears throat> like for this year coming up, we're going to be in the Gold Coast uh, and we've got a lot of players from Perth. So it's a, a long trip across the, the country to, to spend uh, time away from friends and family over the Christmas period. So you do sacrifice a lot. Um, it is difficult. It's a long, long tournament. And it's my job as the, the head coach to make sure everybody is as, uh, as fresh and as healthy and, and relaxed as possible so they can go out there and um, just execute their skills under a high-pressurised environment. So, yeah, it's, um, T20 cricket, it's a, it's a fascinating beast. And, um, yeah, so I think it's just slightly short of um, IPL in sort of standard. But, uh, yeah, it, it's going to get there at some stage. Looking forward to this season, your your roster's chock full of stars, plenty of guys in and around that Aussie setup, plus some big names for overseas this year. How much are you expecting those Australian players or fringe Australian players to be available for the Melbourne Stars throughout the Big Bash tournament? Yeah, the whole year. Uh, fortunately, the schedule persists. Um, oh, it's allowing, uh, well, they haven't chosen any of our boys to play test cricket, which is uh, it's a huge bonus for the Melbourne Stars, but also disappointing for the players who are desperate to play um, test cricket for Australia. So it's a it's a bitter edge or a bittersweet um, selection process for mine because you want to see people achieve their goals, but also you want them to play for the Melbourne Stars. So, And with the overseas signings, um, yeah, it's, 
geez, it takes a lot of hard work to get these overseas players into the country for a 10-week tournament over Christmas. Um, yeah, it's quite difficult, but yeah, we've got Johnny Berso, uh, we've got Nicholas Foran, uh, we've got another young player who hasn't been announced just yet, um, who's just a mystery spinner. Um, yeah, so we're, we're definitely um, on brand, I guess, by attracting some of the best players throughout the world. Uh, as to the Melbourne Stars are, we, we've had Shane Warne, we've had Kevin Peterson. Um, so yeah, we're definitely on brand to keep securing the best players in the world for the Melbourne Stars. And what about those young players? You've got a brigade of, of young guys in your setup. Who should be watch? Who should we be watching out for? Yeah, there's a couple of good young kids coming through. Um, Sebastian Gotch, I still think he's got a lot of upside. He's a wicketkeeper batsman from Victoria. Um, a very assured, confident kid. Um, he's only a little bit geez, he packs a punch with the bat. So hopefully this year is going to be his breakout year. Um, the kid I'll probably like, uh, probably harsh in saying that I like him the most, but. Two kids from WA in Clint Hinchliffe and um, and Hilton Cartwright. Two kids have come over first year last year. A different environment that they're not used to, and um, yeah, they're both very very talented players. Clint is a, a left arm leg spinner <coughs> who can bat and can field. He's a three dimensional player, very very talented, um, and yeah, he, he he really enjoyed the stars last year. And and Hilton Cartwright's probably one of the cleanest hitters in Australia. Um, at the top of the list, he's got. Uh, yeah, just a great bat swing, great kid, can field, can bowl, and uh, yeah, two kids I've really fallen in love with, and they've loved the environment, and it's something the, uh, the Melbourne Stars pride themselves on. It's probably a thing that Stephen Fleming brought in when he was the head coach, that the environment the environment that you create to uh, for allow people to be themselves and to be as relaxed as possible when they play is paramount, and it's pivotal for the team's success and something that I've tried to carry on uh, Steve's legacy. And, and look, one of the, the biggest supporters of our, our show is actually a, a huge Adam Zampa fan, so he'd never forgive us if we didn't ask a, a question specifically about him. I mean, is he as much of a character in the dressing room as he appears from the outside? One of the best human beings you'll ever meet, Adam Zampa is. Um, yep, excellent cricketer. Probably one of the best signings the Melbourne Stars have ever done. They uh, plucked him out from Adelaide Strikers <coughs> about six years ago now. Um, he's a little bit quirky, a little bit different. Um, but what he is, he competes. He's <coughs> excuse me. When he's at the top of his game, he's probably one of the best white ball bowlers going around. Mm. Um, excellent team man, and yeah, he's uh, an excellent human being. <coughs> he's apparently a decent barista as well. He, he keeps the boys in, in flat whites from his room. I hear. Well, that's the thing. He's a uh, yeah, great barista, but he's the coffee beans cost about. <coughs> Effectively, it's about $70 a cup, so Jeez. yeah, expensive taste, so <laughs> I went with one coffee shop to him in down St Kilda Way, and I must admit, I walked into this um, establishment thinking, what the hell have I got myself in for? This is dodgy, and uh, I said to him that, I'll get this, mate, you get the next one, which is a fatal mistake. Two cups <laughs> of coffee cost me $65, so uh, yeah, he loves his coffee, he's a, a coffee snob, and but he's excellent company, so, yeah, wouldn't change it for the world. He's a, a great man and great Melbourne Stars man and great kid. And, I mean, Will Pukowski's name's kind of the one that's that's in demand at the moment. I mean, for, for listeners, I guess, who, who might not know a lot about him, can you, can you kind of tell us a little bit, I, I suppose, what you might see in him and, and what, I guess, makes him, you know, the potential star that he's being talked about at the moment? Yeah, well, 
excuse me, yeah, he's probably the one player that's in our test squad that we probably won't see much of this season. But Will's a um, a wonderful person. Um, he's, how do I uh, articulate Will? Um, he's a very good friend. He lives just up the road in Melbourne town. Um, and, yeah, we probably speak every few days. Uh, just a ripping kid. Very respectful. Um off the field, he, he donates a lot of his time to uh, the local primary school where my kids go. Um, yeah, he helps out wherever he can. On the cricket field, he's um, very self-assured in his game. He's, he's like a 30-year-old who knows his game, a 30-year-old pro who's been around the, the game for 10 years, knows his game inside and out, and uh, yeah, very self-assured in what he can and can't do. Um, he plays fast bowling beautifully well. He seems to have lots of time on the ball. He plays spin exceptionally well, and I dare say he's going to have a uh, a very long career, long, long international career for Australia, batting one, two, or three. Uh, yeah, he's definitely the future of Australian cricket. We've talked about it a little bit in your your own career, but there was a, a group of guys that scored a shed load of shield runs for years and years and years without getting that you know getting that chance at sort of twenty eight, twenty nine. There's a couple of guys, um, Pukowski and Green in particular, that are getting that. I guess call up, you know, really early. What What are your thoughts on that in terms of the, the pressure that that puts on those younger guys? Yeah, it's a, it's a tough one, really, because um, I was when I was playing anyway, and I really hate, I dislike talking about when I played and back in the old days, blah blah blah. But it was almost like it was in, instilled in us that you must earn the right to play cricket for Australia. You've got to score dom- massive, massive amounts of runs or dominate shield cricket for two or three years on the bounce in order to get a, an opportunity. Um, whereas these young kids these days seem to get, say, um, half a good season and they're, they're being talked about. Um, if Say, if, if that was me being a uh, Will Pekoski or a um, or a Cameron Green, I, I would not be ready. I, I'd be uh, probably do more detrimental uh, effects to me and my game. I probably wouldn't have come out the other end. Uh, going into play international cricket and failing, rather than um, yeah, than being a success. But these young kids today, Will Pekowski, for example, he's he knows his game inside and out. He's a just a, a wonderful uh, player of fast bowling. Uh, he's just a, a good, true cricketer that's going to play a lot of games. And if he happens to fail a couple of times, it, it won't be. It, it'll be fine for him. It'll just be water off a duck's back, and he'll go out and, and dominate the, the next innings or next game. Blah blah. So. Um, and Will's probably earned the right to play for Australia. He started off the season so well, he scored two double hundreds, which has very rarely been done. So he definitely deserves the right to, to play cricket for Australia. And probably same with Cameron Green. He's had 18 months of good cricket and he probably earned the right to play for Australia. But the issue is there's some pretty good batters floating around um, and whether they're, they're going to make the changes or not. And for the future for David Hussey, you're working for Kookaburra as well as um, head coach of the Melbourne Stars. Do you see a scenario where you're a full-time coach all year round coming up in your future? Oh, well, what a question. Um, no. Uh, I've got two young kids uh, who I really not need to get home and, and see. Um, they're, they're seven and nine at the moment. So, really, And I think if I end up saying to my wife, I want to be a full-time coach, she'll probably throw a ring at me. Um, she won't take it off her fingers. She'll just throw a punch at me. So um, <laughs> it'll be... Uh, It'll be an interesting discussion, but I'm really happy with the work-life balance at the moment. The IPL was good. Um, Big Bash is is challenging, has its moments, but it is very enjoyable to be around Australian domestic cricket. 
Um, yeah, I'm not really sure. The next three years is pretty much mapped out, but after that, I'm not really sure what I'm going to do. But um, yeah, I've got a few few ideas, but uh, we'll just see what what pans out. Awesome. Well, David, we like to finish the pod with a little bit of a quick fire round. So we'll get you to go off the top of your head. I'll give you one early heads up that we are going to ask for the best sledge you've heard on a cricket field. We know it's a bit of a cliche, but we are trying to find some original ones that have not been heard before, like the suppository story that we uh, we mentioned <laughs> earlier on with your, your brother. Not quite a sledge, but something from cricketing folklore. But we'll start with a nice, easy half volley. What's your favourite innings that you've played? Favourite innings I played was 285 v Essex at Trent Bridge. Toughest bowler you've had to face? Andrew Flintoff. Um, he told me that he was going to hurt me rather than get me out. <laughs> and and, and did, did, did he do either? Um, he hit me about four or five times and it bloody hurt, but he didn't get me out, which was nice. <laughs> Who's your favourite teammate? My favourite teammate? Oh, what a question. Matthew Elliott. Favourite ground you've played at? Oh, it's a toss of a coin between MCG or uh, Trent Bridge. Very, very hard to split them. We're going to have to get you. We're going to have to get a final answer. Is it? Is it Trent Bridge? MCG. MCG. Home of cricket. Good man. Any cricketing superstitions? Uh, I'm not really superstitious. I'm a little stitious, so I'd always put on my left shoe and left hat first. But that's just more out of being, yeah, it's a habit rather than anything at all. And. You've played in quite a few different leagues around the world. Where's the strangest place you've played a cricket match, though? Oh, wow. What a question. Um, Probably probably in Pakistan. We drove about two and a half hours before a game for Aussie A, and I don't know what the ground was called, but I remember we got 370, the boundaries are about 35 metres, and they got them in about the 35th over. So, uh, yeah, it's probably the strangest ground I've ever been to. It's like a little farm ground. That sounds awesome. I fancy a game there, <laughs> 35 metre boundaries. I might, might be, I might be able to hit a six. Um, what, what's the best, what is the best sledge you've, you've heard or heard about? Um, best sledge. I was playing a game in um, Perth, and I was fielding on the boundary. This is... Uh, it was Victoria VWA in a T20 game, tell a lie. So it was a long, long time ago. And um, it was about a 12-year-old girl. Uh, I was running from long off to long on, basically. And I was down into the printable stand. And this girl sort of waved me. In, and I thought she was my friend. So I waved back, being the nice person that I am. And she said, are you cold? And I said, no, it's a 45-degree night. Um, no, it's definitely not cold. Why do you ask? And she said, because you live in your brother's shadow. I just assume you must be cold all year round. Oh, wow. <laughs> For a 12-year-old girl. Pretty, pretty witty by a 12-year-old girl. <laughs> oh, dear. She'd been reading a bit of uh, Sigmund Freud, I think, by the sounds of that. Um, and we'll finish on a little bit of a serious note. What What are you proudest of when you, you look back on your, your cricketing career? Oh, wow. Um, proud of... Proudest moment. Um, I don't really know. I haven't really thought that deeply about my cricket. Uh, probably longevity, I guess. Um, I know the proudest part is every time I sort of got knocked down, um, I always found a way to get back up on top, if that makes sense. So get dropped. I would have got dropped probably about um, 
20, 25 times over my, my cricketing life. So every time I sort of got hit or, or not cast aside, I always found a way to, to get back and, and prove a few people wrong, which probably most, um, it's probably what I'm trying to instill into my kids right now that you never, ever give up. Awesome. And the final one, what's the first thing you're going to do when you, you get out of your quarantine? First thing, I'm going to pay my hotel room bill, jump in a cab, jump in a plane, get down to Melbourne as quickly as possible and uh, yeah, give my um, – my daughter's got a sleepover that night, so I won't be able to see her until the next day. But, yeah, um, probably have a bit of a jousting, fencing session with my boy before he goes to bed and then, um, yeah, just hold hands with my wife. Awesome. Well, look, thank you so much for your time um, chatting to us from uh, from quarantine. Um, all the best for the Big Bash. I know we're really excited to, you know, to keep seeing some cricket on TV. It's been, you know, brilliant to see the IPL go for a pretty decent period of time. And, you know, we can't wait for that to be on our TVs in New Zealand as it is every year over that Christmas New Year period. So go well. Much appreciated, guys. Yep. Thank you very much for having me. Thanks for tuning in to the Top Order podcast. Before you disappear from our feed, if you're a new listener, please do go and check out the back catalogue. We've spoken recently to New Zealand coach Gary Stead. We've got Graham Thorpe. We've got Shane Dietz. We've got Barry Richards, Shane Bond, Colin Miller, all in the back catalogue. You can find the details www.thetoporderpodcast.com with the Top Order podcast on Instagram, although we're still really figuring that out. We're at Top Order Pod on Facebook and Twitter, so don't be shy to jump on. Give our tweets a share or a retweet, and we'll see you next week.